0: For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. Real wars always
1: begin with culture wars. There's a lot of causes for this war. But uh, so-called culture wars is part of the narrative. And um, I think we just have to be uh, aware that our rhetoric, the way we frame things in the end can, can lead to this kind of absolutely unnecessary you know, violence and aggression. What's happening in Ukraine is really, I mean, all war is tragic. It's just that there's just, you know, you had people sort of waking up and having their coffee and then the next day being bombarded.
0: This is For the Life of the World a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity.
2: I'm Ryan Mcnally lins with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. We've covered the rise of Christian nationalism on this podcast before with several episodes' worth of how it's impacted American political and social life over the past two years. But Christian nationalism is far from an exclusively American phenomenon. The temptation to fuse Christian identity, political power, and national ambitions is as widespread as it is dangerous. Over the past month of war in Ukraine, it's become clear again that Christianity is playing a role. But how exactly are theological and religious factors functioning in Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Today, we're going to talk through some of the basic political and ecclesial elements of Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Then we'll consider some of the implications of the current state of Eastern Orthodoxy for the war in Ukraine. To that end, I asked Aristotle Papanikola to join me on the show. Aristotle is Professor of Theology and the Archbishop Demetrios Chair in Orthodox Theology and Culture at Fordham University, where he co-directs the Orthodox Christian Studies Center. He's author of The Mystical as Political, Democracy, and Non-Radical Orthodoxy, and has edited several volumes on Eastern Orthodox theological and political perspectives. We discuss Eastern Orthodox perspectives on war and violence the impact of communism on Eastern Orthodox theology, the complicated ecclesial structures of Eastern Orthodoxy where bishops, patriarchs, and nation-states interact in unpredictable ways. With some of these basics in hand, we discuss Orthodoxy in Russia and Ukraine, the ways Christianity is enmeshed and caught up in the authoritarian nationalist regime under Putin, and the idea of Ruski Mir, the Russian world which has come to motivate and justify a great deal of violence and aggression in the name of peace and unity. Thanks for listening, friends. Aristotle, thanks for taking some time to come and talk with us today. My pleasure. So I know from my own experience that the, the war in Ukraine, the invasion there, well, it showed me just how little I, I know about the Orthodox Church or churches. And as I was a little surprised, I have theological training. I thought I might know more. (laughs) Turns out I don't. And my hunch is a lot of our listeners are in the same sort of boat. And so I thought it would be helpful if you could just fill us in on a few of the terms, a little bit of the lay of the land before we dive into the sort of theological issues at stake right now, like the theological things that are going on around the war. So, so maybe first, Russia and Ukraine were both parts of the Soviet Union. And as I understand it, the relation between the Orthodox Church and the state now uh, is quite different from what it was in the era of communism. Could you give just a few comments about how the church and the communist state related? What was the relationship between communism and Orthodoxy?
1: Yeah, that's that's, a, that's an interesting question. I would say that the Orthodox churches in general have a very traumatic memory of living under communism, no matter what space you're in. I mean, they survived, they had official churches, secret polices of those churches, infiltrated those churches. The memory of those communist regimes don't sit well with the Orthodox churches and they really remember them as regimes that tried to pretty much get rid of Orthodoxy and tried to get rid of that uh, Orthodox history and heritage historically the memory is not a good one at all. And the memory really is one of trying to be eliminated. But I will say this. Recently, there have been Orthodox theologians who have, you know, tried to speak about another side of communism, right? Not, so not sort of that sort of Stalinist 20th century version that we may have seen throughout the various uh, traditional Orthodox countries in Eastern Europe. And so one of the key spokespersons for that is, of course, David Bentley Hart. And so I encourage your readers just to you know Google his name and the word communism, and you'll see about three, four or five articles come up. To be fair, he's not really promoting communism. He doesn't really use that word as often as he was socialism. And he obviously differentiates socialism from whatever we saw in those murderous regimes. He does that. But, you know, one could interpret what he's saying as a form of communism, I guess, in the good sense of the word, right? That sense of... Uh, thinking about communal sharing and thinking about ways of distribution and equality and justice and things like that. So, so that you do have some Orthodox thinkers who, who are moving, who who aren't afraid to speak in that way, but I don't think that's necessarily trickled down to the broader Orthodox consciousness.
2: Got it. Yeah.
1: So, so it's absolutely the case that the, under the communist regimes, that the state apparatuses very much tried to control the churches and what they did. And the churches, of course, to survive, I mean, had to negotiate that. In Russia in particular, in the Soviet Union, I should say, in particular, it was, again, absolutely the case that they went on, they tried to eradicate really any sign of orthodoxy. I mean, they couldn't in the end. But uh, thousands of churches, monasteries, hundreds of thousands of people were just murdered in the name of really their religion, if not millions. I mean, this is all well, well very well documented. And it is the case that, and not surprisingly, of course, that the secret police would, in various Orthodox countries, would place priests and put people in there as priests as ways of intelligence gathering of controlling sort of what it is that those particular churches would do in relationship to um, their own uh, populations because they didn't want a lot of people to become orthodox again they didn't want a lot of people to be religious again obviously right so they tolerated the existence of the church at at some point especially after the 50s but they didn't want people to really they didn't want a resurgence but it is also the case that those churches were part of international organizations so say so they saw those churches as vehicles for both projecting the Soviet Union positively, but also for making sure that those international organizations weren't controlled by the West. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm not going to, be very careful here. Not all bishops, not all priests under those particular commun- that communist period were under the state apparatus. The significant amount of the church infrastructure, I think, was pretty much under that control. And look, quite honestly, I wouldn't say it's not the same situation now, but in many of the traditional Orthodox countries like Russia, like Serbia in particular, maybe even Bulgaria, less so in Romania, definitely not as much in Greece. I mean, there's a sense in which the state apparatus don't want churches to get too much out of control. (laughs) They want, uh, you know, churches to pretty much uh, support what's going on in the state government.
2: It's a little striking to me um, that traumatic history, that it wouldn't lead to more suspicion about being kind of wrapped into a state's projects. But I I mean, I guess it makes a really big difference if the state is talking you up. Correct.
1: That's exactly the difference. If the state supports you, then they're okay with it, and it comes at a very uh, high cost. But one of the things you should also know, as well though, is that the Russian government is using the church in a soft power kind of way to maintain its influence in places like Serbia and Bulgaria, in particular. And, And and one of those things that those churches have to maybe try to realize is that by allowing themselves to do that, to some extent, they're repeating the Soviet pattern. They're repeating the Soviet pattern of the Soviets trying to use, I mean, more directly through their governments controlling sort of the communist territories in in any way that they can, but also using the churches as ways of of maintaining their control too.
2: Turning now to to war. Does the Orthodox theological tradition have uh, a history of debates about The possible legitimacy of war under what conditions war is acceptable analogous to the sort of just war tradition in the west and then the in the west we also see a long history of a a pacifist subcurrent that pops up more or less at, at various different times is there anything analogous in the orthodox world
1: no so there never has been a debate about just war within the history of orthodox Church. You have comments, you have statements by fathers of the church, uh, but there's never been a kind of outline, let's say, of just war theory. There is a excellent book, I have an essay in there, Orthodox Perspectives on War. It has wonderful essays in there and gives a variety of perspectives, especially given what's happening in Ukraine. Obviously, there's been a tradition of justified violence in the form of self-defense. What is interesting, however, is this, is that the Russian Orthodox Church came out with something called the Social Concept Document in 2000. And it's it really was quite interesting. It It was fairly thorough. I don't think it was very well done, but it was fairly thorough. And they talk about war. And one of the things that people have pointed out to me is that the... Patriarchate's defense of this war transgresses what they actually say in that document, and so they're somewhat in an a, 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 they're in a, somewhat in a performative inner contradiction, <laughs> because that document ultimately doesn't really provide sort of the grounding for their current support of what's going on in
2: Ukraine. Uh, so, what's a patriarch? So that's a good question.
1: The patriarch is a a bishop, but not so not all bishops are patriarchs, though. Right. So in the Orthodox Church, we have uh, three uh, levels of clerical ranks, deacon, priest, bishop. And liturgically, I would say all bishops really are the same are equal when they do the liturgy. But administratively, jurisdictionally, they have different uh, levels of authority, uh, levels of responsibility. Patriarch is the highest title, uh, and only few have it. I have to be honest, I'm not 100% clear of the development of why some get the title of Patriarch and some don't. That's a historical question. And my guess, though, too, is that I don't know if there's a, a necessarily a clear answer to that. And so, But the ancient Patriarchades, uh, maybe some of these are Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and uh, Jerusalem in the Orthodox churches, because those were great centers, city centers during the Roman Empire, and then which became, of course, the Christian Roman Empire, or the Byzantine
2: Empire. And so that's to say that if you were bishop of one of those cities, you were a patriarch.
1: Correct. Yeah, correct. But the Bishop of Rome, of course, when there was Christian unity, was not called a patriarch. So yeah, so uh, patriarch is just. I mean, the simple answer really is it is. It's a title. It's a title of respect. It's a, it's the highest title you can get. It means that you are in charge of an independent, what we call autocephalous church, like an independent church. You have pretty much full authority within the independent autocephalous administrative structure, which normally found, which normally follows the borders of a nation state, but in the case of places like Jerusalem and Constantinople, it doesn't. Or Antioch, or even Alexandria, doesn't. And then there are other churches that have a kind of what's called an autocephalous or independent status, but they're not patriarchs. So, for example, the Archbishop of Athens is the head of an independent autocephalous Church of Greece, but he's not a patriarch. And I think why he's not a patriarch, why others are, very much has something to do with uh, certain historical, perhaps even political reasons about how these churches became
2: independent. Got it. So you don't have to have a patriarch to be. Autocephalous, independent. What does that independent status mean? What sort of what? What does it? Yeah, how does it work administratively or kind of in terms of authority and standing?
1: Yeah, the, the Orthodox like to say that amongst all the churches there is a unity of faith, a liturgical unity, even if there might be minor liturgical differences. There's a liturgical unity. And like I said, when bishops uh, get up in front of that altar, you might have one presider, but, and usually the one with, has a certain title of respect is the main presider, but if there's more bishops around the altar, liturgically, they're equal. There's no difference there. So liturgically, they're, 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 in some sense, those liturgical celebrants are all equal. But to be uh, the head of an independent or what we call autocephalous church means that you pretty much... Jurisdictionally, administratively, you pretty much run the show within your territory. So, one of the example I like to give is, technically, the Pope can go, let's say, to the to uh, the Archbishop of New York, right, the Archdiocese of New York, and pretty much make a decision about a priest, a bishop, and that the Archdiocese would have to do that. Now, of course, he doesn't do that, but he could. So, he is. Jurisdictionally, the Pope really is is in charge of global Catholicism, and he has that authority. That's not the case in the Orthodox Church. We have a patriarch, the Ecumenical Patriarch. He he has a kind of a title of respect, of honor, as being first among equals. There's some debate about you know whether that carries some level of authority or not. But one thing is for sure, he cannot go into let's say the Autocephalous Church of Romania and just remove a priest from a parish or tell the patriarch of Romania what to do. He simply cannot do that. And so there's a sense in which uh, jurisdictionally, those churches really are autonomous centers of power. And that, I mean, related to maybe some of the things we're gonna talk about today, that actually has a bit of an impact on thinking through uh, the situation in Russia, Ukraine, and other what's going on in the rest of the Orthodox world.
2: Hmm. So maybe last bit of background, Mm-hmm. Where does the Orthodox Church in Ukraine historically sit yeah. in in terms of these structures?
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's also a bit of a, as with everything in the Orthodox world, it's a bit of a complicated and tricky question. But basically, the area we're looking at around where is Kiev today and kind of a little bit northeast for Belarus, parts of Russia is that constituted sort of that empire. So the historical uh, story is that here, Prince Vladimir of Kiev and Rus, he converted and And to some extent, that was the beginning of what we now know as Orthodoxy, Orthodox Christianity within that area, really within the Slavic world. And then over time, through various historical developments, the center of religious power resided in Moscow. And Moscow's jurisdictional territory, you know, it it did expand it to include what we now know today to be Russia, but also what we now know today to be Ukraine. So... The Moscow Patriarchate became part of the Russian Empire, and again, their jurisdictional territory didn't necessarily follow imperial borders, and they, for historical reasons, it really covered that particular region. And then around the early part of the century, when there was a kind of a push for Ukrainian nationhood or, or kind of a national border as a nation state, and it happened around the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, there was also a push for uh, the creation of an autocephalous Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Uh, And truthfully, I mean, uh, that's how many of the autocephalous churches uh, got formed over the past past few centuries, because the Serbian nation formed, the Bulgarian nation formed, the Romanian nation formed, and many of those autocephalous churches really just followed those national borders, even in Greece as well. I mean, that's really uh, the nation state to some extent determined sort of autocephalous borders.
2: Okay, that's interesting. We shouldn't be picturing autocephalous churches that the waves of empires kind of washed over them and they remained, but the creation of the churches is bound up with the modern nation-state process over the last couple centuries.
1: Right, right. So, I mean, there's a sense in which the history of this autocephaly has something to do with, has something to do both with sort of imperial structures, but then eventually kind of solidified with the the creation of nation-states. And I think the Ukrainian nationhood, the, the movement towards a certain kind of Ukrainian nationhood, Ukrainian national identity, national borders, in nearly part of the century had, some, had also something to do with creation of an autocephalous Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which gained steam again after communism fell. And after communism fell, of course, the nation of Ukraine was in, in fact formed. And there was a bit of a push for an autocephalous Ukrainian Orthodox Church. There seemed actually to be a little bit of uh, possible acceptance on the part of Moscow, but then that was all quickly Stopped, and then there became several Ukrainian Orthodox churches within now the new, the newly formed uh, nation of Ukraine. And there was a bit of a history there. And now we've ended up with that there is a Ukrainian Orthodox Church under the Moscow Patriarchate, which has about twelve thousand parishes. And there's an autocephalous Ukrainian Orthodox Church that the Ecumenical Patriarchate uh, sort of established. They gave what's called a tomos. And they have about 7,000 parishes. And before the war, that's pretty much where we were at. There's, of course, a Greek Catholic population, which is about 20% of the population. And then there's an extremely small kind of renegade Orthodox Church in Ukraine that really is very small and somewhat insignificant in this whole affair now. But that's pretty much where we stood before the war.
2: All right. So the current patriarch of Moscow is Patriarch Kirill. Correct. And... He has been, broadly speaking, supportive of of the Russian invasion and war in, in Ukraine. Could you fill us in a little bit on, on the texture of that support and then maybe what sort of reasons have been offered for it?
1: OK, so on the surface, I mean, the reasons he's giving, it's pretty much in line with the kind of narrative that uh, Putin is giving. Right. There are uh, Russians under attack. There's a Nazification and even the layer like the, Kiro gave this famous uh, sermon a few uh, weeks ago on what we call the Sunday of Forgiveness. Во имя Отца и Сына и Святаго Духа. Всех вас, мои
0: дорогие владыки, отцы, братья и сестры, it's a Sunday
1: right before our Lent begins, saying that ultimately, I mean, implying, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically that the West was leading Ukraine astray and that the, making a reference to the fact that they were allowing gay parades or something like that. So the idea somehow is that in Russia, we kind of promote traditional values. Ukraine is being seduced and led astray by the West. That's immoral and ideologically immoral, et cetera. So Kirill was pretty much supporting it for those particular kinds of reasons. And ultimately, Putin even kind of incorporates a lot of that rhetoric as well. Again, part of the rhetoric, too, is <laughs> we have a shared history. We're one people. we were holy Rus. I mean, there's this thing called the Russian world or Ruski Mir that we're a part of. And we don't want Ukraine to be led astray by these Nazis, by these sort of people who are being seduced by the liberal West. Right.
2: Okay. So, so on the face of it, a large part of that seems... I mean it's just flatly false and a good chunk of it sounds i mean it sounds very reminiscent of us culture war stuff are there theological appeals being made like properly theological or is it giving theological weight to a sort of non-theologically articulated sort of social morality claims what's how does how is theology functioning in this sort of rhetoric
1: yeah i mean so The idea of Ruskimir is a little bit more of a historical kind of political kind of idea. I mean, I I don't really know if theology kind of plays a role in that particular uh, way of seeing things. I mean, this idea, in other words, that we're really one people and we have a common history, a common heritage, we should be one. We should not be seduced by the West, so on and so forth. And uh, I think, and, and it's interesting for your listeners to know, too, that during the empire, to be Russian meant to be orthodox, I mean, the communists sort of delinked that to be Russian meant not to be religious, not to be orthodox. And it really was not clear whether after communism fell, whether that link would be kind of reestablished. And it was, it took a long time, but it wasn't necessarily a given. And Putin around 2012 started to buy into this relinking as well. So that somehow to be Russian meant to be orthodox, right? But that to be Russian, to be orthodox also had this kind of broader kind of Ruskin mirror Russian world kind of idea to it. Now, again, that idea is a little bit more historical, geographical. Where the theology, I think, comes in is when they start to kind of identify this Ruski mirror and this kind of Russian national identity that to be Russian is to be Orthodox, et cetera, to really identify with this sense of traditional values and promoting traditional values and having a kind of democracy that is not seduced by this kind of liberal notions of freedom and autonomy and individuality. And because, I mean, I mean, Russia to this day, I mean, it's, I know it's hard to believe, they'll claim they a democracy, which of course they're not, but there's a sense that they are a kind of democracy that promotes traditional values. That's really where the theology comes in. And recently, just to end here, at this point, there was a declaration against this Rusky mirror. And it was and it was signed by many theologians. I think it's got over a thousand signatures by Orthodox and even non-Orthodox uh, theologians and scholars. And it was, the, the, the word heresy was used once. And I think the reason why it was used was because, again, it's really more historical, geographical. The theology comes with this traditional values. But I think the reason why the word heresy was used is because it's somehow being appropriated It's somehow being appropriated as a way of justifying this violence and this war. It's playing a role there. And I think the word heresy became a very strong way of really condemning the kind of manufacturing or imagination of this kind of world as some kind of theological grounding for a God given mission to save Ukraine uh, from itself. But insofar as this kind of political ideology developed, and, it, and, it, and the church is associated with it, right? So it has a certain kind of what we call ecclesiological dimension, right? A way of understanding the church and its relationship to politics and to nation, because all that is involved. And those, to some extent, there are, that, that does involve theology. It involves a certain way of understanding the church, this declaration did in one instance really refer to it as a heresy as something which is not a proper way of understanding the church's relationship to nation culture, politics
2: etc So it I think you may have used the the term like a, a mission like a historical mission, a god-given mission and that's jumped out at me It seems to be a place where a theology and nationalism, that, that's where you really get going, right? When you kind of have a theology of history and of the theological place of a particular national communities or entities within whatever that theology of history is. And I'm curious, how does that strike you? Uh, I mean, you've talked about heresy in this particular case. Is it Does that strike you as problematic at a formal level, at the level that the kind of identification of nations as bearers of historical, like, God-given missions is a problem? Or is it more at the material level that, in this case, identifying Russia as having this mission and that mission including something like the violent conquest of Ukraine is the problem?
1: It's a little bit of both. I mean, at the theological, at the formal level, let's say, Christian faith is really a transnational faith. And it's one of the advantages of papal primacy, which I know there's a lot of controversy over. But one of the advantages of papal primacy, especially a little bit more recently, is that it's a transnational uh, center point, right? It's a place where people can at least point to as trying to go beyond national identifications, right? And something that's a little bit hard for Americans to understand is the way in which religion, nation, culture somehow fuse together in many places around the world, right, in ways that maybe we don't understand, we're obviously getting a little taste of that now with our own resurgence of what's called the Christian nationalism in the United States. But that that is coming as a surprise to us, right? I mean, that's coming as a bit of a surprise. But you know, Americans are kind of learning what that's about and seeing its impact, right? So, at the formal level, I would say that it's it, it can be very problematic in the sense that Christian identity is a transnational identity, right, and that to It often is the case that when religion, or in this case, orthodoxy, is identified with a particular national identity, right? So in Greece, for example, even today, even though people don't go, 90% of Greeks identify as orthodox Christian. It's a very high percentage. Mm -hmm. But if during the Balkan Wars, let's say of the 1920s, they fought the Bulgarians, and it was clear that their orthodox identity didn't really play a role <laughs> in basically saying to themselves, hey, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't be fighting other orthodox, You're orthodox. Christians. We're orthodox, right? yeah. Right. And I think here in Russia, too, I mean, and we have to just say it's, it, it's it's a one-way kind of thing going on here in the Russian Ukraine because Russia is invading. Russia has invaded. They are invading. They are they're the ones who started the war. They are the aggressors. You know, they're making claims. They're doing it because of Nazis and this and that, which we all know here in the West are false. But it's not occurring to them that they're they are really killing innocent orthodox Christians, so there's a sense in which even at the material level. I mean, it sounds nice. It sounds nice. It's like your, your nation is also kind of imbued with this religious values and this religious way of life. And that can be very nice. Like the, during in Greece, things are pretty much come at a halt during Holy Week. And it's very nice. Everybody's celebrating together and they eat the same foods and they celebrate the same ways. And that's beautiful. And that's very nice. That's one of the maybe the material advantages of it, right? But there are also dangers that come with it as well, in the sense that it can make you forget that Christianity is a transnational faith, that ultimately it's something that refers to God and something beyond kind of national borders and national identity. I mean, I have so many examples and stories to tell you that are kind of really interesting. Like in Greece, one time in 1991, I was visiting with my my friend and we went to his uncle's house And his uncle, so his uncle knows that he's a Greek American, right? American from Greece. whose family comes from that same part of Greece. And his uncle asked us point blank, so in your country, are you orthodox? (laughs) He said that point blank. So because in his brain, because we came from another country, he's not really clear what kind of Christianity we are, Right. And so, that, just to give you some idea, right, of that fusion and in a way how it can impact the way people uh, see the world.
2: So, as you look at the particularly violent form that fusion is taking right now, what What hopes do you have for for Orthodox Christians in Russia, for Orthodox Christians more broadly, in terms of how they think about the public implications of of their faith?
1: Yeah, so let's be clear about the fusion. The fusion is happening in Russia in such a way that the church now, the official church, not all Orthodox Christians in Russia, because there are many who are against what's happening. So let's be clear about there are many priests. Some people who have really risked their lives and their well being, speaking out, et cetera. But the official church, I mean, the Patriarch Kirill and many surrounding him, that fusion has basically led, has backed them into a corner now where they simply have to kind of support and reiterate sort of the, the government's uh, line, its narrative, its way of thinking. That's one of the costs of having relinked Russian identity with Orthodox identity and having the government of the regime now kind of use that in this particular way. So that now that's also leading to the support of this Mir idea, right? Which to some extent is an idea that is saying, well, who we are as Russian people has, not, has nothing to do with national borders. It even goes beyond present day national borders, right? So it sounds a bit transnational. However it is basically being used to tell other people that what you're saying about your identity is just false, <laughs> right? So it's, it's basically that idea is being used to the Russian government, that, that national fusion of religion.
2: The idea is that Ukrainians are self-deceived in thinking of themselves as Ukrainians rather than Russians. Uh,
1: to some extent, yeah. I mean, there's a sense in which they are... You are self-deceived in thinking that we're not all one people and that you really should be a part of us. And again, there is this kind of implication that we're really saving all of you from being seduced by the West, which will just corrupt your heritage, your history, who you are.
2: So... In terms of witness moving forward, what do you hope Orthodox theologians, other Orthodox churches, learn from this?
1: Well, the, the repercussions will be for a long time because, like I said, there was a kind of this. There was this debate within the Ukrainian space about the various Orthodox churches. There was the Ecumenical Patriarch that established this independent church. They did so, and then so there was, and, and, and actually, when the Ecumenical Patriarch did that, the, the most of the Orthodox church sided with the Moscow Patriarchate. So in fact, he gained a lot of social capital within the Orthodox world. He gained a lot. Now, I mean, with what's happening, I mean, I I can't imagine a single Ukrainian, quite honestly, that would, I really can't imagine a single Ukrainian that would want to be under the leadership and the pastoral guidance of the Moscow Patriarchate. That will be one thing to look out for, like what will happen within Ukraine. If Putin in some way, if Putin in some way succeeds in putting in his own, government, this independent uh, autocephalous orthodox church will probably become outlawed. And that will maybe create an underground church. Who knows what will happen there, right? If Putin doesn't put in a puppet government, right, and they come to some other kind of solution, then I think the Moscow Patriarchate's influence within the Ukrainian space will have diminished significantly, right? And not only that, but the social capital it had built with all the other orthodox churches, I think, has also diminished, right? I mean, the Many of them have uneven statements, but I think most of them are, to some extent, pretty horrified about what's happening and the way that the religion is being used to justify this war. What I hope, so the dynamics within the Orthodox Church will change. What I hope is, what I hope all Christians should hope, is that somewhere down the line, there will be some form of reconciliation. But given what's happening, I mean, that, that will take decades, in my opinion. But yeah, but down the line, I hope there will be some accountability some repentance, and some re- reconciliation. Because in the end, I mean, that's really what we're called to do. So, But again, I think that, that, that will take a lot of time.
2: Do you have particular things that you would want or hope American Christians uh, pray for in this time? And do you have particular things that you hope we would learn and take with us in terms of kind of relating to relating the Orthodox churches and relating our own faith to our national identities of various sorts?
1: Yeah, definitely pray for the cessation of the war. Pray for, I think, accountability, repentance, some form of reconciliation and forgiveness, I would say. But I would say what we're seeing now is a certain kind of internationalizing of culture wars. And There's a wonderful project called the Post-Secular Conflicts Project run by Christina Stackel, who's actually been sounding the warning bell on this for a long time. And he made a comment that real wars always begin with culture wars. And we're absolutely in the midst of a culture war here in the United States. I mean, um, people thought that was over, but it's come back full force. And I just pray that it doesn't uh, escalate to violence. I'm not predicting a civil war in the United States. I'm not, but I just hope it doesn't lead to violence and to see that that i guess for americans and american christians especially just to be aware that it's not just simply a clash of ideas but when it becomes a clash of ideas in such a way that there's uh, impasse uh, no compromise uh, no conversation winner take all zero sum game it leads to violence and we're seeing we're seeing that play out there's a lot of causes for this war but so-called culture wars is part of the narrative. And uh, yeah, I think we just have to be uh, aware that our rhetoric, the way we frame things in the end can, can lead to this kind of absolutely unnecessary you know, violence and aggression. What's happened in Ukraine is really, I mean, all war is tragic. It's just that there's just, you know, you have people sort of waking up and having their coffee and then the next day being bombarded and, and, and wondering why.
2: Well, thanks for helping us uh, wrap our heads around at least a little bit of this. It's been a really good talk to you. I've learned a lot.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Anytime. And I invite our viewers to visit our center, our Orthodox Christian Studies Center, at fordham.edu slash orthodoxy, and also publicorthodoxy.org, and our YouTube channel as well, Orthodox Christian Studies Center at YouTube. Webinars, tons of essays over the past two weeks. They could really learn a lot by what's been written over the past couple of weeks there.
2: No, thanks for all your work on that. It's been really valuable to me and I know that others are learning a lot and coming to understand things that again we didn't know we didn't understand a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah. Well thank you.
0: For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured theologians Aristotle, Papa Nicolau, and Ryan McAnally-Lenz. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edit and produce the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. New episodes drop every Saturday, sometimes midweek. If you're new to the show, welcome, friend. Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app, and we'd love your feedback ratings and reviews in apple podcasts are particularly helpful but we're just as happy to hear from you by email at faith at yale.edu we read each comment and do our best to respond and improve the show bringing you the people and topics that you want to hear and if you're a regular listener it's a huge honor that you stick with us from week to week so i'll ask you to step up and join us help us share the show behind those three dots in your podcast app. There's an option to share this episode by text or email or social media. If you took a brief moment to send your favorite episode to a friend or share with the world, not only would you be supporting the show, you'd be sparking up a great conversation around stuff that matters with people that matter. Thanks for listening today, friends.
2: We'll be back with more this coming week.